Today we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We've been in the book of Ephesians for just about a year now, and we've made it all the way to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm excited to share with you what the Lord would have for you this morning. But recently, Junior and I, our youngest son, have been getting into a show on the Smithsonian Channel called Air Disasters. Has anybody ever seen that show? Nobody knows. There are only one or two people know what Air Disasters is. It's just a great show. Junior and I have a great time watching it. And as you can guess by the name, you know, his name kind of implies what the thing is all about. But the show takes these official reports and it takes these interviews with the flight crews and investigators and survivors of air crashes and things that have happened on downed airliners. And they tell the story or reenact the story of the airline crash. It's really fascinating. And so what they do is they do their very best to detail what went wrong and what caused the airplane to go down and how the disaster might have been avoided if people had taken maybe some alternative safety measures or whatever. But recently he and I watched an episode just uh, last week or the week before maybe that dealt with the flight of November of 2016. It was the Lamia flight 2933 that was carrying a soccer team from Brazil. And so the soccer team loads the plane and they're making their way to a place called Medellin, Colombia. They're going to participate in this championship soccer game, very prestigious game, and they're on their way there to play this championship game when the plane's crew suddenly radios in and declares a fuel emergency. And so the show goes on to detail that before the air traffic controller can clear a path for the plane to approach, the plane goes down, it loses power, and it crashes just 10 miles short of the runway. And in this crash, 71 people died. And oddly enough, there were six people who managed to survive the crash. And they told their story. They told what they knew. And so the show interviewed these survivors. The investigators began to dig through all of the wreckage. They began to look at what possibly could have caused the problems. They pulled out the flight logs. They did everything they could, anything they could find that might help them to understand what happened to this flight. And so as the experts analyzed everything that they could find, as they made their way through all of the evidence trying to understand what in the world may have caused the pilots to declare a fuel emergency, they began to run through the scenarios in their own minds. And they, they began to wonder, well, you know, maybe there was some sort of a fuel leak on the plane. Maybe there was something wrong with one of the tanks or something that was holding the fuel. Or, or maybe there was some sort of a mechanical malfunction that caused the plane to begin to leak fuel while it was in mid-flight and caused it to run out of fuel before it could possibly land. And as we watched, we found that their investigation showed that there was actually no indication that there had been any form of mechanical malfunction at all. There had not been any leak of fuel. Mechanically, the plane was sound, and it was nothing like that at all that caused this RJ-85 aircraft to fail and to crash before it could make the runway. Ultimately, at the conclusion of the investigation, at the conclusion of the episode, this is what investigators found. They determined that the airline had inappropriately planned the flight without considering the necessary amount of fuel needed to make it to Medellin. And even though the flight crew was aware of the extremely low fuel levels, the flight crew determined to continue the flight without stopping at the nearest possible airport to refuel. They ran out of gas mid-flight. That's what happened. And so maybe, if you're like me, you're thinking, what in the world, how in the world does an airplane run out of gas? How can you run an airplane out of gas while it's in mid-flight? Well, further investigation found that 
First of all, the plane was 800 pounds overweight, which didn't help, obviously. But more importantly, this is what the investigation revealed. And I found this to be most troubling. It seems that one month prior to the crash, Lamia's insurance policy had lapsed for non-payment. What does that tell you? They were unable to pay their insurance bill. They didn't have enough money to pay for their own insurance. And ultimately, as the airline planned the flight from Brazil to Colombia, they did not want to spend the money on extra gas. And after reviewing the flight plan, they estimated to themselves that they had enough gas to make it. It'll be close, but I think we can get there. They thought, we'll make it. We can do it without stopping. And they were wrong. They gambled, and they fell 10 miles short of the runway. And as a result, 71 people died. Unbelievable. So I wondered to myself, why did those 77 people get on that flight? Why did those 77 people get onto that plane? Why would you board a plane like that? And so they interviewed those few survivors who had miraculously made it through the plane crash. And the survivors' interviews indicated that everything on board the plane seemed normal throughout the entirety of the flight until the engines died. That was their first indicator that something was wrong. You see, as they boarded the flight, no one had any fear at all. No one felt like there was any trouble at all. No one was worried. And as they boarded the plane, no one, not a single one of them, thought to themselves, I wonder if the flight crew has properly calculated the fuel consumption rate and the capacity of the RJ-85 to ensure that it doesn't run out of fuel mid-flight. Not a single one of the survivors had thought that to himself. They boarded the flight without giving it a second thought. Do you know why? Because they had faith. They had faith, didn't they? They had faith that the flight crew was competent. They had faith that the airline company was competent. They had faith that the management of Lamia had properly managed the company to the extent that they could safely make the flight. They had faith. And can I tell you that every single one of you in this room right now and every single person in our society exercises that same level of faith every day. Don't you? Think about that. Many of you have boarded an airplane and haven't had a second thought about whether the plane... And you probably will now. Sorry about that. But But what about this? I mean, every single day, you get in your car and you drive, and not a single one of you, I would bet, will stop before you cross a bridge to ensure that it is sound enough to hold the weight of your car. Not a single one of you gets out and inspects the footings and inspects the structure to make sure that it will support the weight of your car. Do you? Probably not. You just have faith that the engineer somewhere, some engineer, has done his job, don't you? And so you get on it, you drive right across, and sometimes you look down and you're like, wow, that's a long ways down. If there's something wrong, if something happens to this bridge, I'm toast, right? Have you ever done that? How about this? How many of you have ever gone into the kitchen of a restaurant before you ordered your food just to make sure that everything was clean and everything was well cared for and they're properly handling their food? Probably none of you have done that. But what do you do? When the server brings your plate out and they put it in front of you, you look at it and you might think, mm, yeah, but typically what do you do? You just dive right in. You pray first. <laughs> Whoever said that, that was great. <laughs> you pray, oh, God, please don't let this food kill me. <laughs> You pray, that's great, but you have faith, don't you? 
You believe that some health inspector somewhere has gone through that kitchen and they've made sure that people are properly handling the food. They've made sure that everything is going the way that it should. Some inspector has gotten you covered to make sure that you don't eat nasty food. I mean, but think about that. Can you imagine what would happen if everyone in our society decided that they no longer had faith? If every single driver of every single car got out to inspect every single bridge they ever crossed, if every single customer decided that before they would eat a meal, they would go into the kitchen and inspect it, what would happen in our society? If we were unable to board a plane, if we were unable to drive our cars, if we were unable to have faith in someone else, what would happen? There would be total and complete chaos, wouldn't there? The whole entire societal structure would just fall apart. Our society would not survive. There would be chaos absolutely everywhere. But as the families of Flight 2933 learned, listen closely, faith is only as good as the trustworthiness of the object of that faith. You understand? If the soccer players had known that Lamia had allowed their insurance to lapse... If they had known that the Lamia airline company had been cutting corners to save costs every place they could, do you think those people would have gotten on that plane? They may have had second thoughts. may have thought, hmm, I'm not too sure these people are trustworthy. I'm not sure I want to entrust them with my life. They may have reconsidered. You see, faith is only as reliable as the character of its object. I want you to remember that. I want you to take that home. Faith is only as reliable as the character of its object. A Roman soldier would never dream of stepping onto the battlefield without the proper gear. And we've talked about that over the last few weeks. He'd make sure that his overgarment had been securely tucked into his belt. He would be sure that he was covering the vital areas of his heart and his abdomen with a breastplate of some sort. He would be sure to have his Cali guy, his shoes all laced up, securely fastened to his feet to protect him from sticks and rocks and all sorts of obstacles and rough terrain. And he would also be sure to carry a shield to protect him from the attack of the enemy. Now, there were basically two types of shield that a Roman soldier may carry. Here's the first one. This is a clippius. So I want you to take a look at this clippius. Take a look at his shield. This is what it looks like. The Greeks call it the aspis. And it's just a round wooden shield. It's just a round piece of wood. It's a little bit less than three feet in diameter, maybe two and a half feet in diameter. And they would take this piece of wood and they would cover it in leather, probably on both sides, or in some cases they may even put a little bit of bronze on it to make it a little bit more durable. As you can see there, it has two leather straps, and the soldier would insert his arm through those leather straps to help hold it in place, right? So with one arm then, he would use his clippius. He would use that to block the blows of the clubs and the swords and all of the things that the enemy would be swinging at him. And in his other hand, as you can see, he's holding a spear. Or maybe he would be holding a sword to help fight off or to attack his enemy. But the idea would be that he would use this clippius in close hand-to-hand combat. He would use it in the closest fights. As people were very close having hand-to-hand combat, he would use this clippius to battle and to defend himself against swords and clubs and all of these things. Now, the second type of shield that I want you to take a look at, this is called a scutum. Okay? This is a scutum. Now... The Greeks called this a thoreos. 
And it's important for us to understand this because the word thoreos comes from the Greek word thura, which is a door. And so they were saying that this shield looks like a door, and you can see that it kind of does, doesn't it? I mean, it's shaped a little bit like a door. It's oblong. It's probably four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. So it was much longer than the clippius. It was a much different shield. But I want you to keep an eye on that. Once again, this thoreos was made of wood. It might be covered in leather. It might be covered in bronze or some form of metal. But the idea would be that a soldier could duck behind this scutum. He could duck behind this thoreos and he could shelter his whole entire body. Do you see how he might be able to duck behind that and cover his whole entire body? And in fact, sometimes what would happen is you would see a group of soldiers all carrying their scutums and they would come together and one of them would place his shield on the ground and the other one would take his scutum and he would put it overhead and they would form a scutum wall. I want you to take a look at that. That's what a scutum wall looks like. You see that? This is very important because now they're forming a barrier that looks like this. So when a group of soldiers came together in this kind of formation, they're pretty well protected, aren't they? Do you see that? They're pretty well protected. They're pretty safe. And what they could do then is they could move forward ducking beneath these shelters. They could hide beneath their scutum. They could stay in this formation, stay tightly together, and they could advance and move forward slowly to get in position to fight with the enemy without any of them being taken out. And you see, the reason that they needed to do this was because it was very common as battle lines had been drawn up and the two forces were facing each other and they're about ready to engage... For the enemy to have his archers begin to fire off as many salvos of arrows as he possibly could. He would just fire off as many as they could. And the idea was that they wanted to soften the enemy. They wanted to wound as many as they could. They hoped to kill as many as they possibly could before they got close enough for hand-to-hand combat. And so they're firing off all of these arrows hoping to soften the enemy. And in fact, the archers may even go a little bit further and they may take the arrows and dip the tips of their arrows into some form of pitch or into some form of oil and then they would set them ablaze before they fired them off. And then as the arrow hit its target, that pitch would splatter and it would burn everything that it came into contact with. Sometimes it would actually contact the clothes of the enemy and the clothes would catch on fire and all of these things would catch on fire. Do you see? The soldier would hide behind his thoreos and he would hide behind this scutum wall. And as the arrows rained down on them, they would hit them and they would just harmlessly fall to the ground and they would be safe and they would continue to stand firm. They would continue to move forward into battle. So now with that as a background, take another look at that picture and I want you to let that sink in. And with that as a background, I'm going to take you back to Ephesians chapter six, where we're going to look at our verse for today. And to do that, I'd like us to start with verse 13, and this is what it says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So the idea is to withstand, and having done all, to do what? Stand firm. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle, and your job is to withstand. Your job is to stand firm. As the spiritual forces of evil are waging war all around us, fighting for your very souls, as the enemy attacks us, as he tempts us, hoping to knock us down and hoping to cause us to slip up and to fall, you must be prepared to endure the attack. You must be prepared to stand firm. You have to be prepared for him. You have to be ready for him. You need to make yourselves ready by being genuine in your faith. That's what the belt is. You have to be genuine. You have to be real. You need to protect your thoughts and you need to protect your emotions with the breastplate. Your feet must be firmly planted 
on the good news that you now have peace with God through your faith in Jesus Christ. And now look at verse 16, and this was what Paul says. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the shield of faith. And here, the shield that Paul talks about, do you know which one it is? It's the thoreos. It's the scutum. He says, take up the thoreos. Take the shield of faith. He's saying that we should be using our scutum. We should be using our thoreos to protect us. Why do you need to be protected? Why is it that you need to be protected? Because the battle is raging all around you. Friends, listen. The enemy of your souls stands by firing off arrows at you. He's constantly firing off flaming arrows at you. He's dipped them in pitch and he's set them afire and he's firing them off, hoping that when they hit the target, they will splatter and cause as much destruction as they can to not only you, but all the people around you. He wants to be as troublesome as he possibly can. He wants his attacks to be as vicious and as harmful as they possibly can be. So I want you to think of this in very real terms, in very practical terms. What is it that Satan is firing off at you? What is it? I mean, what are the arrows that he's firing off at you? What are the darts that he's firing at you? Well, they're temptations. And I want you to get this, okay? This is very important. He takes shots at you. He fires darts and arrows at you, trying to hit you with darts of impurity. Did you hear? He wants to hit you with darts and temptations of impurity. He wants, he wants to force you to compromise your purity and your righteousness. He takes shots of selfishness at you. He tempts you with things of selfishness and, and pride. He wants you to become so self-absorbed. He wants you to be so inwardly focused. He wants you to be so selfish and so consumed with yourselves that you're no use to the causes of God and His purposes. He wants you to be filled with doubt. He wants you to be filled with fear. And I think each of you know which of those darts you have the most trouble avoiding, don't you? Is it your purity? Is it pride? Which are the darts that are most likely to hit you? Where are you most likely to fall to his temptations? Maybe he fires darts of lust at you. Maybe he fires darts of pride. But I want you to know that whatever the dart is, it all comes down to one thing. Can I tell you what that is? Those are the things of this world. That is the source of his temptation to you. It is the things of this world. Those are the things that he uses to tempt you. They're all earthly things. They're all temporary things. They're all the things that can only impact you while you are here. You see, he wants you to love the desires of this world. He wants you to fall in love with the desires and the passions of this world, just like all of the people around you. Take a look at 1 John 2.15. This is what John says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now look at verse 16. For all that is in the world. Now here it is. The desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's where he wants to hit you. He shoots thousands of arrows at you all of the time, trying to get you to fall into the trap of the things of this world. He fires off darts to tempt you. He fires off darts to seduce you. He fires darts to elicit from you some ungodly and evil response. He's chasing you and firing darts at you all of the time. And those darts or those arrows are just showering you all the time. 
They're spraying all around you every time you turn on the TV, every time you drive down the road, every time you go to the workplace, you're being showered with these darts of temptation from the enemy. And what he wants to do is he wants to penetrate your defenses. He wants to penetrate your defenses. He wants to hit you in the vulnerable areas of your thinking and of your emotion. That's where he wants to get you. If he can just get the temptation to hit you in the areas of your thinking or in the area of your emotion, then he's got you and that's where he can hold you. So those temptations just rain down on us. How in the world are we to protect ourselves from that constantly day in and day out? Take a look. Get behind your scutum wall. Do you see? Get behind your scutum wall. Get behind your scutum wall. Duck behind beneath your thoreos. So I'd like us to talk just for a minute about the thoreos, if I could. Imagine with me for a moment a Roman soldier such as the ones you're seeing here, such as the one standing before Paul as he writes his letter from prison. This Roman soldier is on his way to the battlefield and he makes it to the battlefield and the lines are all drawing up and he knows that it's time to fight. It's time to go. The enemy sets off his first round of artillery arrows. Some of them are on fire and they're just raining down on them. And those soldiers are properly grouped together just like this, just like they should be, hiding beneath their shields for safety. But as the arrows begin to rain down on the soldiers, they find that due to budget cuts, Caesar has decided to make the shield out of craft paper or freezer paper. What happens? Can you imagine? Well, they wouldn't get much protection. The arrows would penetrate the paper. They would go right through it, setting most of it on fire. There would be all kinds of damage. The soldiers hiding beneath their shields for safety would be pierced with the arrows. They would die from the, from the blow of the arrow. The soldiers' clothing would probably be set ablaze. All of the people around him would be set ablaze. So do you see the problem here? The shield is only as durable as the material that it's made of. The shield is only as durable as the material that it is made of. Now, I want you to think for a minute, and I want us to translate this into our spiritual battle. What is it that verse 16 says is our shield? Verse 16 says it is what? The shield of faith. It's your faith that is your shield. And so I want to help you understand that quickly. What is faith? Have you thought about that? What is faith? I know probably many of you in your minds are going right to Hebrews 11 and you're saying faith its the assurance of the things hoped for. It's the conviction of the things we have not seen. And then if you'll continue through the book of Hebrews, you would find a list of people who were considered by God to be righteous because of their faith. And I think that's excellent. But it's interesting to me when I talk to people who say, I have faith or I believe in God. Isn't that what they mean? They mean, I believe in God because to them that's faith. Well, I believe in God. I've got faith. But I want you to know that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what he's talking about. And it's interesting to me when those people say that. To them that's faith. But James tells us in chapter 2 and verse 19 that even the demons believe that. We know that even the demons believe that. Paul says in Romans 1.20 that God has generally revealed himself to all the people of all the world. To some extent, everyone has the ability to have that kind of faith to believe that God is real. But we wouldn't, certainly would never expect that demons and people who, and all the other people of the world are going to be safe in heaven, would we? We wouldn't expect that, but they do have faith, if we use that as our definition. They believe in God, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here because ultimately everyone is able to believe in God. We're not talking about believing in God. Listen to me, we are talking about believing God. 
We're not talking about believing in God. We're talking about believing God. Because if you are to reduce temptation, if you are to reduce sin to its most basic level, it all comes down to one thing. Do you believe God? Can I illustrate that for you? To do that, I'm going to take you to the book of Genesis. You'll remember the story of Adam and Eve. You'll remember that the temptation of Eve, that she had to make a choice. Satan came along as she was in the garden, and he fired a dart of temptation at her. And I want you to see what the very first fall looked like, what the very first failure in time of temptation looked like. And this is what it says. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He, this is Satan, said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of the tree in the garden? So here it is, friends. Did God say, you see? Satan says, did God say? And she, of course, knew exactly what God had said to her. And verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So God said, if we eat of that fruit, we will die. Do you see her response? Did God say, God said, if I touch it, if I eat of it, I will die. So clearly she understood what God said, didn't she? Now take a look at verse 4. But the serpent said, you will not surely die. And I want to stop right there. So there it is. The temptation is the fruit. God said, eat it, touch it, you will die. Satan said, eat it, touch it, you will not die. You'll be smart. That was the temptation. So Eve had to make a choice. Do I believe God or do I believe Satan? Who did she believe? She believed Satan, didn't she? And so she fell in her temptation because Satan said, you won't die, eat it, and you'll be smart. Whom did she believe? She believed Satan rather than God. And that was the sin. Friends, listen to me. Every temptation that you ever face comes down to that. Do you believe God or do you believe Satan? Let me give you a couple examples. Let me give you one from Ephesians 5. We were there not long ago in verse 18. Did God really say you should not get drunk? Well, yes. The Bible says getting drunk is debauchery. And so Satan comes along and he says, did God really say that to you? Did he really say that you shouldn't get drunk? And you say, yes, he did. And then Satan says, wait a minute. It is not debauchery. It's fun. And all of your friends are doing it. They're, in fact, down at the bar right now having a great time, but you're afraid of debauchery. And so then you say, okay, that sounds like fun. I'm going to go down there and just check it out. I'm going to see what they're doing. And so you go down there and you join them. And the next thing that happens is you get drunk. Now I want to ask you, whom have you believed? Have you believed God or have you believed Satan? God says, don't be yoked together with an unbelieving spouse. You have nothing in common. Satan comes along and he says, did God really say that you should not be married to an unbeliever? And you say, yes, Satan, that's what the word teaches. And then Satan says, but he's really hot. He's so smart. You can change him. Nobody else should get married to an unbeliever, but I think you're going to be all right on this one. And what happens? You marry the unbeliever, you go ahead and you get married, and then you have problems. Whom have you believed? Have you believed God or have you believed Satan? God says, I will supply all of your needs. Satan comes along and says, did God really say he would supply all of your needs? And you say, yes, that's what the word teaches. He says he will supply all of my needs. And Satan says, well, then why in the world are you still broken living with your parents? And you say, hmm, that's a good question. And Satan says, he's not providing for you, but you can steal this money right here and everything's going to be all right. And you take the money, whom have you believed? Have you believed God? Have you believed Satan? God says, don't worry, don't be anxious for anything. Satan comes along and says, hey, you better worry. 
You just got a terrible diagnosis. You just found out some terrible things. And he says, you better worry. Whom have you believed? God says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. I've got you covered. Satan says, you're in really bad shape right now. You better worry. Who do you believe? You see, that's what it comes down to, friends. Believe God. And you know what? Believing God is the shield. Do you see that? Believing God, having faith, is the shield. And believing God is the only way for you to protect yourself from the arrows of the enemy. Get under your scutum. Hide behind your thoreos. This is where you find out what your shield is really made of. You see? You hide behind it, and then when the arrows start coming, that's when you're going to find out what kind of material your scutum is made of. Is it made of a solid material that will protect you? Or is it made of some flimsy material that allows all the arrows to get through? Do you see? Listen, Abraham was a very old man when God promised him that he was going to have a son and he was going to make him the father of many nations. You know the story. God promised him that would happen. But what was bad was not only was Abraham old, but so was his wife, and his wife was unable to have children. And so year after year, the time went by, and Abraham had no son. But you know what? Abraham believed God. Look at Romans 4.19. Just follow along with me. He did not, speaking of Abraham, weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But listen, he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And right now I want to give you three steps from the model of Abraham's faith that's going to make you strong and make your shield very strong. Write these down. Think of these. Three steps. First, verse 20 tells us that Abraham knew the promise of God. He had heard the word of God and God had promised to give him offspring, and he knew that that was going to happen. So listen to me, friends. The first step is that you must know the promises of God. You must know what the promises of God are, and where do you find those promises? You find them in his word, don't you? You find those in his word. So if you want your faith to be made strong, you must fill your mind with the promises of God. You must fill your mind with the word of God. If you are not reading his word, you have absolutely no basis for understanding the promises that he has made to you. Do you understand? You must read and study the word of God. Step one. Step two. Earlier in the message, I told you that faith is only as reliable as the character of its object. Remember that? Now listen. If you look at verse 21... You see that Abraham knew that the object of his faith was rock solid. He knew the object of his faith was God. His faith was in God, and Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the second step to making your faith strong is to ask yourselves this question. Is God able to do what God promised? Is God able to fulfill his promise? And just so you know, as you fill your mind with the word of God, not only will you give yourself a basis for understanding his promises, but there is also there historical proof that will help you to understand that God is able to do what he has promised. So step two, go back to step one. Step three, take a look at verse 20 again. He never wavered concerning the promise of God, but he did what? grew strong. How did he grow strong? As he gave glory to God. Friends, step three to making your faith strong is to give God glory in all circumstances. When things are good, give God glory. Lift him up. Tell the world of the fact that God has poured out all of his blessing, all of his good favor on you. It all comes from God. And that's pretty simple. 
And we've spoken before about the fact that it's difficult to give God glory and praise when things are not going so well, when things are going poorly. And that's when we need to remember Romans 8. Take a look at 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good for those who are called according to his purposes. So knowing that no matter the circumstance, friends, no matter the circumstance, God is going to work it out in my favor. Knowing that, I can then give glory to God even in the bad times. And then Romans 4 tells us that in all of this, Abraham grew strong in his faith. Friends, this is how you make your, your shield strong. This is how you make your shield durable. You know the promises of God as he's revealed them in his word. You know the object of your faith. You know that God is able to do what he promises, and you give him praise for it. That's it. And in all of this, your shield will be able to cover and protect you, and it will stop the arrows of the enemy. Do you see? Now listen, there's one more thing that I want to show you. And so I want to take you back to verse 16, and I want you to see this. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. When should you be under your thoreos? The language says, in passing. In English, it sounds like I'm saying in passing, I guess, but that's not what I'm saying. It means all the time, in all things, do you see? In all things, in everything, in all circumstances, all the time. Friends, you should live under your shield of faith. Do you see that? You should cover yourselves everywhere you go in believing God. And this is what it means to live by faith. At every point, you believe God rather than Satan. At every point, with every arrow, you make the choice yourself. And you say to yourself, God did say this, and I do believe God, and I refuse to believe Satan. That's what you do. That's how you put out and shelter yourself from the flaming arrows of the enemy. I want you to take a look at our scutum one more time. Take a look at that. Your faith offers you a great deal of protection, doesn't it? You can hide behind it. You can find safety as you duck behind that. But can I just show you something? Can I just show you where your shield of faith is even more effective? Take a look at this. Do you see? Friends, listen. When you stand with other believers who also carry the shield of faith and you work together to encourage, perfect, admonish and to build one another and to protect one another. I want you to know that when you're sheltering one another from the arrows of the enemy, you are even stronger. Do you see? Can you picture that? As you stand together, may I encourage you with something? Do not stand alone. Do not stand alone out in the middle of the field with your little scutum trying to duck behind it and protect yourself. It offers you a great deal of protection. But don't stand alone with your shield. Hunker down with other believers right here in this church body, friends. Hunker down with the people right here in this church body. Get under the shelter of common faith. Get under the shelter of believing God and be made safe. I want to encourage those of you who are already here and you feel like you're ducking under the scutum wall. Can I just encourage you with this? If you're here and you feel like you're protected by the scutum wall, go find someone standing outside of it. Go find someone who is trying to protect themselves with just their one singular little shield. Get your arms around them and bring them in and make them strong. Bring them in and offer them the protection of the church body. Offer them the protection of your shield of faith and make them safe, my friends. Listen to me. If we do that, Root River Church will be a powerful, powerful and unshakable force in the city of Franklin. Do you know that? Can you get your arms around those people? Can you shelter them with your shield of faith? Is your faith strong? Isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of? Father, I thank you so much.
for your kindness to us. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your instruction. I thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. And it is my prayer, Lord, that you would make every single person in this room this morning strong in their faith. I pray that their shields of faith would be built of the strong material of the character and the promises of God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be students of your Word. I pray that you'd let us to be convinced in our hearts that you are able to do all that you promised. And Lord, above all, let Root River Church be a church that gives you glory at all times. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would make us strong. I pray that you would make us a welcoming family. And I pray, Lord, if there are people standing out, hiding behind their own shield, Without the safety and the protection of a church body, I pray that you'd bring them here. And when they come, Lord, I pray that you would help Root River Church to be a body of people that will get their arms around them and pull them in and hold them safely and protect them and to train them up in the Word of God and to shelter them with the promises of God and to shelter them with the knowledge of the power of God and to shelter them with giving you glory at all times. We ask these things in Jesus' name.